Dr. Jonathan Howard is double-boarded in neurology and psychiatry, and as he puts it in his Twitter profile, the author of several non-best-selling neurology textbooks. And that's not why he's being interviewed. He wrote his own book on fallacy and errors in medicine entitled Cognitive Errors and Diagnostic Mistakes, A Case-Based Guide to Critical Thinking in Medicine. And I keep trying to interview him about this book, and he keeps changing the subject. In the last interview, a few months ago, we discussed cognitive biases in vaccine hesitancy and cognitive biases used by the anti-vaxxers. In this time, we talk about how biases have influenced how we perceive the danger that COVID-19 poses to children. He teaches us about the contrast effect and why it can be used to dangerously minimize the impact of COVID on children, and how we also need to use contrast as a frame of reference when we determine risk and how we can know when we're using it appropriately. Dr. Howard did his residency and fellowship at NYU, where he is now an associate professor of neurology and psychiatry, specializing in multiple sclerosis. He's the neurology clerkship director and director of neurology at Bellevue. He can be found on Twitter at jhowardbrainmd, and you can find his blog articles on sciencebasedmedicine.org. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Let's talk a little about this episode's sponsor. Vive Funds is a commercial multifamily real estate firm trusted by physician investors, physician families, and busy entrepreneurs from all over the U.S. Located in Dallas, Texas and founded by Vina Jetty, Vive Funds specializes in curating conservative passive real estate investment opportunities for investors. Vina brings a dynamic perspective to targeting, acquiring, managing, and operating investment assets using the best time-tested practices combined with cutting-age technology. Reach out to Vina and her team at Vive Funds to find out how you can be a successful investor too by creating opportunities for you to build your portfolio. You can find them at drpodcastnetwork.com slash Vive Funds, V-I-V-E Funds. Jonathan Howard, thanks so much for coming back to the podcast. Tim, my pleasure. I sure appreciate it. Thanks for having me again. So I'm glad we were actually going to discuss your book on cognitive biases that physicians have. And this is now the second time we've delayed that particular interview. You know, the first one we changed it for was cognitive biases in vaccine hesitancy, right? Or that the anti-vaxxers use. But now we're not going to cover that yet. Instead, we're going to cover some of the conflicting information that we as physicians are getting from our colleagues and the public has been getting from our colleagues that may not necessarily be wrong, but is framed in such a way that can be misleading. So yes. you're here to help us parse through that and figure it out. I hope so. I'll do my best. We'll definitely cover cognitive biases in doing that because I think we're seeing some of them in action in everyone but me, of course. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It always affects other people. Correct. So talking about the contrast effect, because I thought that was really powerful. On your blog, you cite the Ebbinghaus illusion, which I think everybody should Google right now, as long as you're not driving, Google it because the image, it really sticks with you and lets you know how powerful that really is. So first, what is the contrast effect? Yeah. So first of all, it's, it's not my blog. I'm relatively newcomer there. It's science-based medicine. So it's been around for, I don't know, a decade before I started working there. But if anyone wants to find this particular article, just Google science-based medicine in my name or contrast effect. So the contrast effect is just that how we perceive an object is often affected by what's around the object. So this can be easily done with colors. For example, if you take a black object and a white object and put them right next to each other, they're going to look really different different, but you can take that same sort of black object and put it next to a gray object and it won't look so black anymore. Or the Ebbinghaus illusion is a very simple illusion. It is two circles of the same color that are the same size. One of the circles is surrounded by much bigger circles of a different color and that circle looks small. And the other circle is surrounded by smaller circles and that circle looks big. Okay. So this is just a very standard optical illusion and it just takes advantage of our fact that our brains don't perceive things in isolation. We compare them 
to each other. Yeah, I remember there was a study on chimps, I think, where they gave them a cucumber and the chimp was totally satisfied with the cucumber. And I think I've actually brought this up on the podcast before. And then you give the chimp next to it a banana and the one that you gave the cucumber is going to try and cram that cucumber up your nose. No longer as delicious as it was. This is my favorite YouTube video of all time. It's a grape, by the way, not a banana. Grape. The grape is the treat. I show it to the medical students every month because I say to them, one of you on this rotation is going to be the monkey with the cucumber. Just try not to compare yourself to sort of what your friend is getting in terms of grades or, or whatnot. No, but you're absolutely right. And, and just, you know, so one of the best ways to make people unhappy with their salary would be to make in a group or institution to publicize everyone's salary or something like that, because they would say, oh boy, you know, ask someone, are you satisfied with your salary? And they'd say yes. And they say, oh, do you know your neighbor's making double you? Well, now I'm not satisfied yeah. with my salary. But of course, you know, it doesn't affect things. And the contrast affects not just how we perceive objects, but how we perceive numbers. And so salesmen know this. This is a sort of very common technique would be if they want you to buy, you know, a TV that costs a thousand dollars, to have a couple that are on display that cost $10,000 or something like that, or to first show you one that cost $10,000 and suddenly that $1,000 TV does not seem so expensive anymore. You know, what I wrote about, I think that this has been done a lot this pandemic with children and how COVID has affected children. Okay. And so in the article, I divide things into sort of orange circle statements and blue circle statements. And the orange circle statements are just the facts about how COVID has harmed children. Okay. So far it is killed. And then unfortunately, this is another article I wrote that the numbers are not quite as concrete as I would like them to be to make decisions, but at a minimum, it's killed about 350 children and it's a maximum up to 600, depending on which tally you may believe. Wait, hold on just one moment, because I think your article was written before the Delta variant was really here, right? These numbers are pre-Delta variant. Yes, it is. For the most part, yes, the Delta variant was just arriving and we'll see a spike in pediatric deaths. There's no question about it. As a matter of fact, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, in the past two weeks, they added 22 children to their death tolls. It's not really clear if the Delta variant is worse for kids. Pediatricians seem to think it is. I can't point to any sort of formal evidence that that's the case, but certainly it's more contagious. A record number of children, 94,000, were infected just last week, and a record number of children are being hospitalized, 239 per day. Well, even if the chance of a kid getting sick and a chance of a kid dying is the same, because the Delta variant is so contagious, the number of exposures per kid is going to be higher. The reason I mention that is because The numbers that you're using, you're trying to illustrate that people are minimizing the effect in children by using this contrast effect. But the numbers that you're using to illustrate that, in fact, it is a big problem in kids are ultimately going to be under what we're likely going to see because of the Delta variant. Story of children in this pandemic isn't over yet. Yeah, exactly. And I want to be clear that I'm not apocalyptic and the doomsayer in my very second article on science based medicine, which was written, I think, in early May, I said, Barring a nasty variant, the worst is over for children in this pandemic, okay? And unfortunately, that nasty variant came. I don't like to think of myself as just sort of a prophet of doom and gloom and, you know, sort of enjoys being proven right. I told you so, you know, you know this is not in a position that I thought I would be in or that I'm certainly happy to be in. But you're right. So all of the orange circle facts are still in flux. But other orange circle facts that so we talked about the number of deaths are the number of children who've been hospitalized. And this is a very hard figure to pin down because not all hospitalizations are necessarily reported, especially early in the pandemic. A decent number of children, even close to half potentially, again, probably this is more true early in the pandemic, were hospitalized for other reasons and happened to test positive for COVID. Kid breaks an arm and they test positive for COVID. And you know that there's no doubt that some of those children have been tallied. So there's reasons that the number can be underestimated and the reasons the number can be overestimated. But regardless, it's tens of thousands of children at a minimum who have been hospitalized this pandemic. And as I said, it's never been as high as it is right now. We're at the pandemic's peak for children. And then complications such as MIS, you know, inflammatory disorder in children, which has affected about 4,400 children, a very severe 
severe disorder that lands about 80% of them in the ICU. And then of course, you know, there's millions of kids who got the disease and they maybe were sick for a week and it's not the end of the world. We were sick for a week. And of course, we don't know about long COVID in children. I think the numbers from there are all over the map about how many children are going to have it. But those are the sort of orange circle facts. COVID has killed this many children. It's hospitalized this many children. This many children have missed, et cetera. And what are some of the blue circle facts? Okay. So blue circle facts are facts that are independent of orange circle facts. No blue circle fact is going to change an orange circle fact. Okay. So a blue circle fact might be that more kids die of suicide. Okay. That's true. It's true. More children die uh, suicide each year than will probably be killed of COVID. Another orange circle fact is that 0.01% of the deaths this pandemic had been children. Fortunately, it's extremely small percentage of children relative to adults. And the third orange circle fact, I think, is that a very small number of children who contract COVID will die. Again, maybe the Delta variant will change this. I hope not, but it's something like one in 50,000, right? An extremely small percentage of children will die. And so there's nothing wrong with these blue circle facts. They're all true. Okay. And they can help us. We don't see our brains in, you know, we don't perceive numbers in isolation, right? If I told you the nuclear submarine cost the United States government $50 million, is that a little bit? Is that a lot? I don't know. When you get to these big numbers, your brain needs a way to contextualize it. Okay. So I have no problem with blue circle facts. They're true and they can be useful. What I have a problem with are the many doctors who have written this pandemic about COVID and children only use blue circle facts. You can read some people who've written large numbers of articles about children in this pandemic, and all you will learn is that it kills them much less than adults or that more children die of suicide, et cetera. But I can name diseases where fewer children die. So fewer children die of brain-eating amoeba, but that doesn't make COVID worse for children right now. And so all the blue circle facts are peripheral to the orange circle facts. They help us contextualize and help us understand it, but it's not the core number. Okay. And I think if you were to tell most people COVID has killed 500 children, this pandemic, give or take, it has hospitalized tens of thousands of them and sickened millions of them. And especially if you had told them that pre-COVID, let's say we had met January 1st and I said, but you know, a virus is going to come along. Maybe it's not even a virus. Let's say I said a serial killer is going to, terrorists are going to come invade the United States this year. They're going to murder 500 kids. They're going to send another 40,000 to the hospital. You know, you'd be, holy, this is a disaster. This is something that we absolutely have to change. Unless it meant gun control. Yeah. And then <laughs> we wouldn't. Depends on the color of the terrorists. So there we yeah. go. I think that's what you have to try to do to understand COVID. And really what you're getting at is, are you paying attention to the numerator or are you paying attention to the denominator? So if you pay attention to the numerator, COVID sounds pretty bad for kids. If you pay attention to the denominator, one out of 50,000 kids dies of COVID, that doesn't sound so bad. The problem is that multiply rare harms by tens of millions of children those rare harms add up. My kids didn't get COVID, thank goodness. But if they did, I don't think I would have lost any sleep. I'm going to be much more nervous when my daughter gets in a car for the first time behind the steering wheel, right? I mean, you know, she sometimes stays out later than I want her to. And here in New York City, she's a teenager. And uh, that makes me much more nervous than if they had gotten COVID. So the individual risk for any child who gets COVID isn't that high. But again, these rare outcomes multiplied by tens of millions of and the CDC estimates potentially 40% of children have gotten sick at this point or gotten the disease. Those harms add up to numbers that I think pre-COVID, we all would agree weren't trivial. Like if I said, eh, only 500 kids died, that would be sociopathic. But it just seems so small because we think, oh, holy smokes, over 600,000 Americans have died. We had 500, that's 0.202% or some very small percent with the big deal. So, But I think that relative risk also helps people to assess what we've been okay with in the past, right? And so one thing that I feel strongly about is a, a terrible way to live your life is this is the way we've always done it. And so this is the way we should continue doing it. But at the same time, we've, as a society, decided that something is an acceptable amount of risk, right? Like motor vehicle accidents. We do our best to minimize them, but we still accept it. It's not like we're taking all the cars off the road and we've decided to walk. So we've, as a society, accepted that a certain amount of risk is okay. As I'm trying to decide for my own family, 
what we're going to do going forward because, as you said, barring another nasty variant, COVID is really going to be getting better. And now the nasty variant is there. So the nasty variant may spawn another nasty variant and another one and another one. And so it looks like this is going to be with us for an unclear amount of time. The sunlight isn't going to suddenly make it evaporate. So what I need to decide for my family is how much risk I'm okay with. How long can we possibly keep holding our breath and not having people over to our house and not having my kids go on play dates? So my kids, all the listeners probably know because I talk about them all the time, five, three and a half, and almost two. So they can't be vaccinated. And I want to start doing stuff. Like, when can I take them to the Bronx Zoo? And I know everybody's threshold, everybody's risk tolerance is different, but I need something to compare it to that I was doing before and found acceptable in order to make these decisions. Or am I being ridiculous by saying that? Oh, no, no, you're not being ridiculous. And in in my article, I use exactly that. And I say the example of motor vehicle deaths, I say the risk to COVID, at least in terms of deaths, which is not the only bad outcome of COVID, our car crashes for that matter. It's on par with risks that didn't close schools last year or year and a half ago. We accept the fact that in order to have our children get from place A to B, some are going to die, right? You know, that we don't walk everywhere, right? But we still try to make cars as safe as possible, right? We have airbags and seatbelts and drunk driving laws. And I can easily imagine a future 10 years from now where motor vehicle deaths, thanks to smart cars and self-driving cars, are a thing of the past. That would be sort of a wonderful thing. So no, you're not crazy at all, right? And, you know, reasonable people can look at orange circle facts and sort of say, you know, I accept moving forward that if schools are open this fall and COVID is probably going to happen, COVID is going to spread widely throughout the pediatric population, especially in Southern states where there's low vaccine uptake. And we can accept that hundreds of children are moving forward are going to die of this disease. That's not a crazy position, but it should be made explicit. That's my objection to people who don't use orange circle facts. They, they skirt around the issue by saying only the harms are rare or their children are much less vulnerable than adults. And these are people who often boast of, well, we have to be frank about trade-offs. You know, they often tweet under the hashtag facts, not fear, but you won't learn facts from. So I just think people just need to be very explicit and say, we may decide that kids going back to school and resuming social friendships and this sort of thing is reasonable risk. But you have to be explicit that what's going to come with that. Some children are going to get sick. Some are going to be in the ICU. Some are going to die. And another thing we haven't really talked about is some are going to lose their parents. This pandemic has created tens of thousands of orphans in the United States. And one thing that sort of bothers me is that some people have described the vaccine to children only as a means to create herd immunity and protect older people, you know, and they'll sort of say, you know, it's unethical to give a vaccine to a child to keep other people safe. There are some vaccines that we do that for. Rubella, by the way, and the main reason to give rubella is to prevent birth defects, but it's the exception. But that's not why we're vaccinating children. We're vaccinating children to protect them primarily. And it's a bonus that they might not bring the disease home and kill their parents, which absolutely has happened in a few cases this pandemic. So again, I think all of your concerns are extremely valid and I have no problem with blue circle facts. I just have a problem with people who don't use orange circle facts and they don't make it very explicit. This is what is going to happen if the disease is allowed to run rampant throughout kids. So should I take my kids to the Bronx Zoo? Oh, that's outside. Absolutely. You should take your kids. A tougher question is, let's say your kids, I doubt they're too young, but I mean, let's say they wanted to go to choir practice inside or something like that, or that would be a harder thing. I mean, I'm hoping that a pediatric vaccine for, I don't know about for toddlers, but for at least kids five to 11 is not going to be in the super distant future. And obviously the best way to protect your children is to make sure that they are only around adults who are vaccinated. I mean, that's something that I would do as a parent, right? I would not let my children around to the extent that you can help it, unvaccinated adults. And I would try to have them wear masks. We're lucky here where we live, you know, Ron DeSantis as a governor, you know, I think there's sort of common sense things that can be done to protect children. You should try to do those things. Like we do with cars, right? Wear seatbelts, get an airbag. You've got the crumple zones. You can still drive the car, but you've taken as many reasonable mitigating efforts. Wear masks when you can. Have other people wear masks when you can. Not in intimate settings with only a few people inside. Fine. 
But if it's a nice day, open the window. Like there are things that you can do here and there that really don't go to Lollapalooza. Probably a good piece of advice. I mean, that the pictures of those crowds was just insane. Yeah. Definitely take your kids to the Bronx Zoo. I did stuff like that before my children were vaccinated. Fortunately, mine are both old enough to be vaccinated. My daughter had some friends over before they were vaccinated. We just, it was not good for them to be completely isolated and without seeing their friends. You know, I'm also lucky that I live here in New York City that they can just walk to most of their friends' houses and, you know, that there's a ton of stuff to do outside and all the restaurants have been transformed to outdoor dining, you know, which has been very nice. So we were able to adjust. But some of the things that are asked to give up are not so bad. Uh, a lot of life can be moved outdoors in a nice way, in a safe way. Yeah. You mentioned that your kids are vaccinated. So I think let's move on to another issue that's been discussed of some debate among physicians, and that's myocarditis post-vaccine. Just myocarditis for those who haven't studied it in a while, inflammation of the heart, and they've kind of lumped myocarditis and pericarditis together. So whether it's inflammation of the heart and any myocarditis is not good and needs to be taken seriously. So I think almost all of these kids, when you identify myocarditis, they're going to be admitted to the hospital because the kid has inflammation of the heart muscle. I think something like 80% of them resolve fairly quickly without any sequelae, at least so far. Inflammation of the heart is still a serious issue. What number did you say? You said 50%? 80%. 80%, yeah. And I'll talk a little bit about that number. Let me just give a little sort of disclaimer. In my professional life, I'm a neurologist and I'm a psychiatrist. I treat multiple sclerosis mostly. So I'm not a pediatrician. I'm not a cardiologist. You know, what I hope I'm good at, I look in my mirror and tell myself that I'm good at is sort of crunching numbers and really trying to present them fairly. If I could say one thing about my writing about this issue, and it's all on science-based medicine, that we studied what I really strive for is to present both the orange and the blue circle facts. Like I do think kids should get vaccinated, but I'm very clear to try to present the reasons that people have used as to why they should not get vaccinated in a very fair way. For example, I absolutely concede that a lot of the pediatric hospitalizations, and I already mentioned this, have probably been inflated due to incidental COVID. Again, there's sources for both overcounting and undercounting hospitalizations. But with that disclaimer, actually, before you start, last week's episode was about Robert Cialdini's principles of influence mm -hmm. when you're trying to convince someone of something. And one of those, and I forget which principle it was, but when you admit to a flaw, like when you admit that there are cases of myocarditis, there is risk here. You're actually making a more convincing argument to someone who's skeptical about the vaccine because you then have more authority in their eyes because you're admitting that it's not perfect. You're not just an evangelist. So I think it ties in really well to last week's episode because admitting to this makes it a more convincing argument because it makes you a more believable authority. Right. That's a great book, by the way. And everyone would say this about themselves. You know, I try to view myself as someone who doesn't have a side. Like I want to try to present all the information in sort of a very fair way. I mean, ultimately, I do have a side in that I think the vaccine is safer than the virus for children. So I do have that side. But beyond that, again, everyone would say this about themselves. So what's the point? But with myocarditis, the first signal actually, I think, came out a little bit before the vaccine was approved. There were some whispers of it. Certainly, Israel was actually the first country to report vaccine myocarditis, and they actually reported the highest rates. They reported rates of 1 in 3,000 to 1 in 6,000. And this is primarily in young men after the second shot, okay? And they also reported that 95% of cases were mild, okay? And they decided to approve the vaccine for children 12 and over. So even though they reported the highest rate, they went ahead with that decision. The United States has reported a little bit lower rate. Initially, the CDC reported a rate of about 1 in 15,000. And, you know, it's very hard to collect data on these sort of rare outcomes. There are several vaccine safety monitoring programs which try to collect data on that. And each one has their own strengths and their weaknesses. So the rate in the United States, the highest rate, again, was for young boys, adolescent boys, 12 to 18 or so after their second shot. And that was about one in 15,000. 
Canada. I've seen risks rates of about one in 10,000. So it's a very clear, I don't want to say signal anymore. I don't, there's any question that this is causative. There's no question that this causes. And previously it was only the smallpox vaccine, which caused some myocarditis. So, you know, some doctors described it on Twitter as mild. Other people objected to that. I can see why, right? This is all due to the contrast effect. If I took you January 1st, 2020, and I said, new vaccine is going to be released to American children. And it's going to cause myocarditis in about one in, we'll just say 10,000. And it's going to send them to the hospital and it's going to be given to every child. And so multiply that, you know, one in 10,000 times every child, that's 7,000 American children. You'd say, holy smokes, this vaccine's got to be taken off the market ASAP or it's got to be protecting against a much worse virus, which I think it does, but it shouldn't be minimized. I think even though the rate of myocarditis is a little bit in flux and we still have to determine that, to me, the most reassuring thing is that all of the kids seem to have recovered. So you quoted the statistic of 80% seem to recover. And I think that's the only reason that's not 100% is just because when that the CDC released that information, just not enough time had passed. But knock on wood, every single article I've read about this, and this includes younger adult men aged 20 to 30, or even a handful of older adults. I'm not sure it's ever fair to say myocarditis is mild, but if it is ever fair to say myocarditis is mild, vaccine myocarditis seems to fit the bill in that all children seem to recover without symptoms, usually just after a couple of days. And most echoes seem to recover full ejection, you know, fraction after a couple of days as well. So it seems like all of these children, it seems like a temporary thing. I mean, obviously time will tell, but if myocarditis is ever mild and temporary, it seems to fit the bill. And this is what pediatricians who treat this say. They say, this is not like any myocarditis I've ever seen. And the kids are even wondering why they have to go to the hospital. So to me, that's all very good news. Did that come into play when you were deciding or... I'm not sure how the decisions are made in your family, maybe helping your son to decide. Because again, myocarditis, primarily in males, actually without the vaccine, myocarditis is primarily a disease yeah. of, of young men. So with the vaccine, it makes sense. So when you were helping your children, but more so your son because of the higher risk, decide to get vaccinated, did you do the math? Was that part of the equation? Did you weigh the risks of having sequelae from COVID versus having sequelae from the vaccine? Or how did you make that decision? Yeah, absolutely. If I thought that the virus was not more of a threat, he wouldn't have gotten the vaccine. And I think that there's no way that you can slice it where if you had to choose between the virus or the vaccine, it makes more sense to get the virus. Okay. If someone handed you, you know, behind door A is the virus, behind door B is the vaccine. Everyone should choose door B. The only sort of issue that some doctors raised was essentially in April, there was a sort of sense that COVID was going away, right? That we got this thing beat and maybe children can choose the best option of them all, which is not get the virus and not get the vaccine like we do for smallpox. Let other people do it. Let other people get the vaccine. Let other people put themselves at risk. Not quite. So that I don't have to. Not quite. To defend them a little bit, their attitude was Every adult will get the vaccine and therefore kids will be protected by vaccinated adults. Now, having studied the anti-vaccine movement for years, I knew that there is no way every adult was going to get the vaccine. Although, to be honest with you, I didn't think it would be quite this bad, to be totally honest with you. So I knew that that was sort of a pipe dream. And this was the very first article that I wrote on science-based medicine is not enough adults are going to be vaccinated to create herd immunity for kids. And importantly, herd immunity is a local phenomenon. You may hear like the United, you know, I've seen doctors say India's reached herd immunity or the United States reached herd immunity. That shows they completely don't understand herd immunity. Herd immunity can exist in one neighborhood, but not another. And that happened here in New York City in 2019, where there was a measles outbreak that was localized to just a few neighborhoods in, in an area where 99% of people are vaccinated. If 1% of them are not vaccinated and those 1% of people all live together in the same neighborhood, the virus is going to find them. It was a pure fantasy that the United States as a whole country was going to reach herd immunity for COVID. That's number one. And None of those doctors considered that a variant like Delta could arrive. I strongly objected to their arguments at the time. Number one, they didn't include 
any orange circle facts. It was just, the, you know, the, all they wrote about COVID and kids is the harms are rare. That's it. That's all you would know reading their articles. And they never considered the possibility of variants such as Delta. And so precaution against the unknown and the unexpected works both ways. Got to be careful with a new vaccine. It can create side effects that we didn't anticipate, which happens. I don't think anyone anticipated this side effect. And there are also unknowns with the virus. As you said, we think Delta is going to be the last variant. I hope so, but it's not a plan, right? Hope is not a plan. James Cameron. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anyone in the United States, and probably the whole world, to be totally honest with you, is going to be able to avoid immunity to COVID. I think you're going to get it one way or another. Either the virus is going to give you immunity or the vaccine is going to give you immunity. You know, who knows? Maybe an isolated sheep herder in uh, New Zealand can live out their life without encountering the virus. But for most American children, that's not going to happen. And people are very short-sighted, right? They saw the falling numbers in May. There were like 5,000 cases a day or some wonderful, beautiful thing like that. They thought that trajectory was just going to continue. But kids aren't going to have to avoid the virus just this summer or just this fall, they're going to have to avoid it the rest of their lives or get the vaccine. So I think it's pretty clear that the risk-benefit calculation favors getting the vaccine. And the CDC did these sort of calculations, how many hospitalizations would it save? And it was a lot. Already those slides, which were from May or June, are probably way outdated. I think the Delta variant has rendered those slides and those CDC calculations obsolete. And it's now much more in favor of getting the vaccine. And it's even a flaw to compare vaccine myocarditis with a kid hospitalized with COVID. Kids hospitalized with COVID or certainly with mists, can be very sick, intubated, on pressers. There are handful of horror stories of kids needing amputations or lung transplants. I mean, those are rare, you know, don't get me wrong. And we admit almost everybody with myocarditis. We don't admit almost everybody with COVID. We admit them because they're sick, not because they have it, but because of the severity of their illness. So if you're going to compare those numbers, you're clearly comparing apples to oranges. So I think kids hospitalized with COVID are usually much sicker. Again, we don't know what the long-term side effects of COVID are. I've heard some sort of fear mongers, you know, it's going to, oh, reduce IQ by 10 points. I don't think we've established that either. But we got to be humble that some of these viruses can potentially have long-term side effects. Time will tell. It's an experiment that's going on right now with American children. More interesting question. I don't know how I feel about this, but a lot of people are pushing to have the FDA issue an emergency youth authorization for children less than five, even though those studies aren't complete yet. I don't know how I feel about that. I'm diagnostic. I haven't really staked out a position yet. I can definitely see both sides. But you could make one mistake, which would be to approve a vaccine too soon and have it cause you know, even worse side effects in younger children, or you could make the mistake that the FDA seems poised to make, which is to not approve it soon enough and just watch COVID run rampant through schools this fall, which I don't see how that isn't going to happen. Like how are schools in Florida not just going to have COVID run through every classroom? With them having throwing away precautions. Yeah. I just don't see how it's not going to happen. And there's a price to be paid for too much precaution. And I think we'll talk about cognitive biases. What really is happening here is errors of omission and errors of commission, right? Like we tend to feel guiltier about problems we cause than problems that we fail to prevent. So when a child gets COVID and is hospitalized for COVID, and again, over 230 children are being hospitalized every day. In Florida alone, at the very end of July, it was 32 kids per day being hospitalized. We tend to think this is nature, this is natural, it's no one's fault, there's no one to blame, there's no finger pointing, and that's kind of true, I suppose. But when a kid gets sick with vaccine myocarditis, we feel we did this to them, we took a healthy child, we gave them a disease or a condition, which is true. And we tend to feel worse about that. We tend to feel that we did something more wrong or that the harms are greater for that. And talking about cognitive biases, that's sort of an interesting psychology there. Again, I alluded earlier that the main disease that I treat is multiple sclerosis. And when a patient of mine has a horrible relapse that leads to them to be in the hospital, I feel bad. I don't want that to happen, but I don't usually feel responsible. Like I did something, right? When they have a medication side effect, and I do give medications that can cure patients that have led to brain infections, PML, thank God I've only seen that 
once and someone I was involved in. But you'd be a horrible, you'd be hooked or just devastated when they have a side effect from the medication that you gave them. You did this to me, doc. They don't blame themselves. They're usually not so nasty as that, but that's what I hear them saying to me or that's how I feel. So these airs of omission and these airs of commission feel very differently. And I think that explains a lot of the vaccine hesitancy, even amongst doctors in our profession. I love the way you put that because I've had those conversations with parents Whenever I have an adolescent male, I always bring up the HPV vaccine. I'm an ear, nose, and throat doctor. I diagnose tonsil cancer and basal tongue cancer, HPV-related. It's on the rise. It's much more common for the girls to get the HPV vaccine because cervical cancer, but the boys don't get it. And a lot of the rationale is omission versus commission. If they happen to get throat cancer 30 years from now, it's not the parent's fault that it happened, even though it was their decision to not have the kid get vaccinated. But I don't know how to phrase it without sounding like an absolute monster. But yeah, omission versus commission is just a great framework to be able to think about it. I think if you just think about the contrast effect that there's a lot of physicians out there, not a lot, but a couple who are very vocal and published a lot in the Wall Street Journal or Medscape and even the BMJ, holy smokes, they're a font of anti-vaccine information. And so what they'll do is, they'll, you know, it's just full of blue circle facts, nothing about how COVID has actually harmed children and fears of heirs of commission of doing something to healthy children that makes them sick. So I think that's all problematic. And one thing that I think we haven't talked about yet, but I think that we should, are some of the blatant factual errors that people in our profession with large platforms have made this pandemic. And, and that's been very distressing to me. When we first talked about the anti-vaccine movement, I may have mentioned some of the ultra quack doctors, Sherry Tenpenny, Kelly Brogan, Andrew Wakefield. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, Magneto, Sherry Tenpenny. Yeah. yeah. Right. You know, that vaccines are going to make you magnetic or some of these doctors deny. Hasn't made her personality magnetic. You can tell that. <laughs> that are Joseph Mercola, just these sort of like fringe wackadoos. There's no other we know when we see it that this person is not something I want to associate myself with. Right. I can't believe them. It's easy to tell. Right. They'll deny germ theory that viruses don't cause disease. I yeah. Mean, it's preposterous. Uh, preposterous, right? And they've done a lot of damage this pandemic. Yeah. I don't want to minimize them. But there's a group, I think they're called the Center for Countering Digital Heat or something like this. And they identified the 12 biggest promoters of disinformation on Facebook. Happily, most of them got booted from Facebook, but it includes those names and RFK Jr. Just horrible misinformation, this pandemic. But I've been very surprised to see it come from people with extremely good credentials. Some of those doctors I just mentioned have, by the way, but current, very good academic positions who have just made errors in very public forums that are bizarre, extremely wrong. And, and why do I say they're bizarre? Because they're so easily refutable and I'm unsure what the motivation is. So let me give you an example. So one prestigious doctor who's on Fox News and has a column in the Wall Street Journal said that no healthy child has died of COVID. He said, I reviewed the news reports. I reviewed the medical literature. I have talked to pediatricians from around the country and no healthy child has died of COVID. If that's true, that would be really important information. Maybe you would only vaccinate children who were obese or who had asthma or some underlying condition. Again, death is not the only bad outcome of COVID. But anyways, it'd be an important piece of information. But this was easily refutable. All you have to do is Google healthy child died COVID and you will find 10 articles from around the country of healthy children who have died of COVID. And the CDC did an examination of the first 121 deaths. This included people less than 21 years old. Okay. And half of them were less than 18. So not a huge number, but 25% of them had no underlying conditions. So it's just this wildly inaccurate claim. I would just like to take issue with the healthy, calling them healthy. One of my kids has asthma. One of them has eczema. I just diagnosed someone last week who's in their 70s with asthma. They've had it their whole life. They just called it bronchitis. And so they didn't even know that they had an underlying condition. And they may have even had it since childhood. When you're calling children healthy, like how are you even defining what a healthy child is? Because my kid with asthma, 
I think of him as being healthy. Yes, he has an underlying condition, but it's well-controlled, it's well-managed, and he lives fine. He is fine. So even that, like, really, it just infuriates me when I hear it because it then says something about those kids that might have a health condition. There's on sort of social media, or you'll see people say, you know, how many of these kids had underlying conditions? And the attitude isn't, we really have to protect those. Yes. It's, and they're kind of expendable. And it is important to note, as you just said, that these are, for the most part, these are children who have actually their whole lives ahead of them. It's not a child with terminal cancer who is going to die on Friday but catches COVID and dies on a Wednesday. It's not someone who lost a couple of days of life or a couple of weeks of life. Even that would be tragic. I don't want to minimize that. No, but that's how they're framing it. When they say that, that's what they're making it sound like. They're not appreciating that whatever this underlying condition is, is something that they could have lived a long, healthy life Correct. with. You know, just some other errors that I've seen doctors make. I was saying there's a cardiologist in Kentucky, doesn't matter, but who described the pediatric vaccine trial as not measuring clinical outcomes. That's what he said. It just measured the immune response, but not clinical outcomes. That's not true. As a matter of fact, the title of the article is Immune Response, Efficacy, and Safety of This Vaccine. And in that trial, 16 children got COVID. All of them got placebo. None of the children who got the vaccine were vaccinated. But he described it in a very well-read article on Medscape, I think. And the commenters, no one picked this up. Another doctor, a widely viewed epidemiologist this entire pandemic, been on a lot of news shows and written a lot of articles. If anyone wants to know who he's referring to, just go to his Twitter feed. Go to Jonathan Howard's Twitter feed and you'll see exactly who he's referring to. We're trying not to name names right now. Some of my things on science-based medicine is probably better. But she said that the death rate for children are for people under the age of 20 was one in a million, that one in a million people died. And that is just mathematically impossible because at that point, between five and 600 people under the age of 20 had died of COVID. And if we'll just say 500 to make the math easy. And if one in a million died, that would mean that there had to be 500 million people under the age of 20 in the United States when the entire population of the United States is 330 million people. And these people make these errors over and over again. They make them all in the same direction. They never make an overestimating COVID. It's always underestimating COVID. It's always playing down the vaccine. And how are they really different from those people who I mentioned at the beginning, the sort of dirty dozen, right? They're not making these ridiculous claims that vaccines make you magnetic, but I think in some ways that sort of makes them more dangerous, right? If I had read a year and a half ago, pre-pandemic, an article in the Wall Street Journal written by a full professor at Johns Hopkins University saying no healthy children had died of this virus. I'm going to believe him, right? I don't feel the need to sort of, you know, with anti-vaxxers, I better fact check things. But full professor at Hopkins writing about a virus, I believe that he said I scoured the news reports in the medical literature. I would have believed that. But there's a large number of people out there, a larger number of doctors who I think really have to be carefully fact checked. When I read an anti-vaccine article, I'm now going to fact-check everything. And I, I think they have to be approached that way. Or there are other doctors, and I'm beating a dead horse here, who, who maybe they haven't made those specific ears of fact. But if you need 10 pieces of information to evaluate whether the vaccine is safe and effective, they'll give you three. They'll give you three. Just the three that sort of support your view. So it's really sort of their view, these ears of omission, which I think are unconscionable for this pandemic. and how that the Delta variant is just causing increasing harms to kids. I have not seen any one of them say, boy, you know what? I was too optimistic in May. I thought this was going away and it really isn't. Now 200 children are being hospitalized every day. Schools haven't even started in much of the country. Maybe vaccine myocarditis. We still don't have a good sense of how common it is. Maybe there aren't reports of kids dying and going into heart failure. Thank God. Maybe I should reevaluate my position. I'm not getting any of that. And I think, again, talking about cognitive biases and influence, I think a lot of the problem is that these doctors have been given these sort of large platforms and they have made these comments on national TV and sort of national print. And for them to go back against that at this point and say, hey, you know what, COVID is really 
hurting some children right now and the vaccine seems to be pretty safe after all, it would be like me renouncing my entire profession and my family's become such a core part of their identity. And it's very hard for people to admit air. One of these other doctors from Johns Hopkins, who I just mentioned, wrote a very famous article in the Wall Street Journal saying herd immunity would arrive in April. Great if true, over 1.5 million Americans were diagnosed with COVID in April. So what happened when May rolled around, he said, that we've reached herd immunity. And the reason that people don't think we've reached herd immunity is that people confuse the concept of herd immunity with eradication. They thought herd immunity meant zero, but we've reached herd immunity in the exact words where it's time to move on. Okay. And so now that we are approaching up to over a hundred thousand cases in the day, it's not quite as bad as it was this January, but it's much worse than it was a year ago at this time. Had there been any self-reflection where you know what? Maybe we haven't reached herd immunity. <laughs> Maybe I was wrong. No, zero zip nada. And that's another thing that they have in common with the disinformation doesn't is zero self-reflection, zero ability to admit error, even as they call on other people to admit error and say how important it is to be humble in medicine. It's just shocking to me. And I think we have an obligation as a profession to call this out, to say when our peers make these sort of false claims. Not every physician should do this full time. And we all have, you know, our sort of hobbies and interests. But this summer or a year ago during the Black Lives Matter protests, I remember seeing a few comments. If you have one bad cop and 99 good cops and the 99 good cops say nothing about the one bad cop, then you have 100 bad cops. I think that's a little bit true here, that if we see these physicians make these statements that are just easily falsifiable. I'm not talking about differences of opinions. I'm not talking about should schools be open or closed. Reasonable people can disagree about that. But just these wildly factually incorrect statements, we do have an obligation to politely call that out. So the doctor that you just mentioned was, I think, the same one who wrote the article to Air is Human, right? The one in three or the third leading cause of death in the country is medical error. And I wonder how many deaths were caused by that medical error, by saying it's over, it's time to move on. How many people heard that and acted accordingly? And then there are ramifications. So I don't know if it's ironic, but interesting that error has likely led to significant morbidity and some mortality. You know, or just this idea, young people have virtually no risk, right? Go to an average unvaccinated 25-year-old in Alabama right now and say, what do you feel your risk is of getting really sick or dying of COVID? They'll say, no, 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 it just affects my grandma. She's vaccinated, she's okay. A lot of these people might not be anti-vaxxers. They might be avoiding the vaccine the way I sometimes avoid the dentist. I'm not anti-dentist, but I don't rush to make. Sometimes in my every six month appointment, I'm a little bit delayed, but the virus doesn't care. It doesn't know why you didn't get vaccinated. So I think this may have been true when the pandemic first started out with the very first variant of this virus that I did see a 23-year-old die, so a 35-year-old die. Younger people then weren't entirely not protected. Minimal risk is not absent risk. Right. You know, but it definitely affected older people much more than younger people. Well, this is not true of COVID in, in August 2021. I just read about some church in Florida where they had six deaths in a week and half of them were, or maybe they had 10 deaths and six of them were people under age 35 without underlying medical condition. Like when you read about a healthy 30-year-old dying of COVID, you're not like, oh my God, you know, that I can't believe that happened. You know, of course not. You're like, oh, you know, another one now. Yeah. And talk about the contrast effect. Our standard for what's acceptable has really changed. How many people died today in the United States of COVID? Probably about five to 600. How many of these would have been preventable if every adult got vaccinated? Probably every single one. So the anti-vaccine movement killed 500 people today. It's going to kill 500 tomorrow. And, you know, I mean, who knows? The best way to look like a fool is to make a prediction about what's going to happen in this pandemic. But it's not going to go, when is COVID going to start killing 10 people a day. That'll be a wonderful time when that happens. That's probably many months or years into the future, actually. Who knows? I won't try to make any predictions, but I remember, I think it was in 2016 or 17, like there was one woman who was immunocompromised who dies of measles. One. 
And that was huge news in people like myself who oddly follow vaccines and that someone died of a vaccine preventable death or the measles outbreak in 2019 here in New York City and in Disney World. No people died during those outbreaks, none. They were huge news at the time. Now we're seeing outbreaks of, you know, I think in all 2019, there were over a thousand cases of measles, right? Now, thousand cases of COVID, whatever. <laughs> That's like Miami today, right? Just our standards have changed so much because we all lived through 3,000 Americans dying for months at a time this winter. And so that's really how the contrast effect has affected all of us, that we look at the New York Times numbers, we see uh, 450 people died today, whatever, of a completely preventable disease now, completely preventable. And it's just, it's just shocking. Well, if you want to find more of Jonathan <laughs> Howard's uh, bright and cheery blog writing, but really, I love the way you frame things. I love the way that you think about them. And it really helps us to be able to be a little more scrutinizing of ourselves and our colleagues when it comes to these things. I really appreciate it. Again, I really enjoy following you. I love reading your blog and following you on Twitter. And if anyone wants to find it, it's sciencebasedmedicine.org slash author slash Jonathan Howard, MD Brain. Is it your What's the Twitter handle again? Oh, gosh. I think it's like J. Howard Brain MD. Or J. Howard Brain MD. Yes. And my, my only sort of closing thought will be, hold me to my standards. If I make an error, and I have, I've made a couple of dumb statements this pandemic, let me know. The last thing I want to do is have misinformation spread under my name or seem that I'm unwilling to correct an error. So I hold physicians to a high standard, especially those who communicate with the public. Uh, our words have consequences. You know, Ron DeSantis is now parroting conspiracy theories that he learned on Twitter about COVID, that it's being misdiagnosed as that really kids in Florida aren't getting COVID, that they're getting RSV. That's my topic for my next blog. So our words have consequences and we really need to be careful with what we say and hold me to my own high standards. If I make an error, send me a message on Twitter. Let me know in the comments of Science Based Medicine. I will acknowledge it and I will fix it if I agree with you. And then you'll have to come back on the show to issue a retraction. Absolutely. Okay. Jonathan, again, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. What a great show with Jonathan Howard. But before we end, just a quick reminder about our sponsor, Vive Funds, V-I-V-E Funds, provides unique passive multifamily investment opportunities that they vet and bring to you as an investor. Reach out to Vina Jetty to see how partnering with Vive can help you reach your real estate investment goals at drpodcastnetwork.com slash V-I-V-E funds, Vive funds. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.